It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, October 29th, 2009. The official Reformation Day, uh, October 31st, the day uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now that's coming up. <laughs> it's like Christmas for a Lutheran. And you're thinking, yeah, but what about the presents? Well, the gift is the gift of salvation. You know, I'm just saying. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, that's right. There's all kinds of crazy things being said about God out there. And, uh, well, just to say a lot of them, uh, that, uh, they're really creative things. But see, when it comes to, um, making proclamations about God, creativity is not a good thing. It's actually a bad thing. Uh, we don't want to preach our ideas. We want to preach what's been revealed. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, something I've noticed about the scriptures. I mean, why on earth would you want to trade the bona fide real revelation about God? For what somebody's just concocting in their own head, I, I just don't understand that. <sighs> and by the way, this program, not politically correct. This, no, 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 no. Um, if you were looking for, you know, somebody to basically butter you up, to, you know, to affirm you and, and use positive, soothing words to, to make you feel that God loves you and and that and and everything is just coming up roses in such a way that there's no thorny issues to worry about or any mean doctrinal truths that need to be hammered out. You're you're really listening to the wrong program. I just you know hate to say it, but it's true. You're not listening to the right one. This is this pro- <laughs> program could. Uh, it could challenge you in ways that you may not be prepared to be challenged. All right, we got an interesting program lined up today. And uh, first of all, we've <laughs> got a sh- small uh, uh, news story I want to cover from the Telegraph in the UK. Uh, the, uh, the headline is about um, uh, church leaders joining to fight the battle against climate change. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that. And then uh, I, the bulk of the first hour is going to be taken up I'm going to be interviewing uh, Todd Wilkin from Issues Etc. He's coming on the program today. And we're going to be talking about an article that he wrote a couple of years ago, which we will post today at the uh, the Pirate Christian Cove, entitled Bible-Believing Liberals. That's right, Bible-Believing Liberals. It's a, it's a very, very good piece, and I'm very excited to uh, interview uh, Hare Wilkin on that. And then, uh, and then in the second hour, talking about Bible believing liberals, we're going to, it, I find this to be just the perfect sermon. It's just the, the right thing to <clears throat> go with my interview with Todd Wilkin on Bible believing liberals. We'll be listening to a sermon from Erwin McManus of Mosaic. And, uh, the name of the sermon is the, the relational intelligence, the energy carrier. I have no idea what any of that means. Um, so that's that's going to be our whole program today. I, it, I, I know it's like only three things, but uh, again, it's it's not 
quantity, it's quality. That's the thing we go for here, quality. And so uh, yeah, definitely make yourself comfortable. And we're going to just dive right into the program proper. That's right. That That's our news music. The headline from the Telegraph in the UK reads, Religious leaders join to battle climate change. Woohoo! Oh, finally, yeah. I'm not excited. And <laughs> from the... <laughs> All right, the the, the story reads, There's a moral imperative to tackle the causes of global warming. Leaders from across the UK's religious community said at a meeting hosted by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Captain Obvious, a.k.a. Rowan Williams, uh, leaders from Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Baha'i, Jain, and Zoroastrian faiths called on the UK and the G20 governments to fight for an ambitious deal to cut greenhouse gas emissions at UN-led talks in Copenhagen in December. Oh, that'll tell them. That's just... Uh, wait a second here. Um, <clears throat> Don't you remember, uh, was it a week ago? Two weeks ago now I read a story from the BBC. Hang on a second here. Religious leaders joined to battle climate change. They, they, want, they want people to get serious and get tough about global warming. Let me remind you of this. Uh, I think they're like 11 years too late. I mean, isn't this like um, showing up after uh, the Germans, uh, the Nazis declared, you know, basically surrendered to uh, the Allied troops? So like showing up in 1955 and saying, we got to battle them Nazis. Yeah, we, it's, it's, we have a moral imperative to stop those Nazis. Uh, the Nazis um, were defeated back in the, uh, <clears throat> like, you know, in the mid-40s. Uh, um, why are you here doing this? That same thing here. We got these religious leaders getting tough. we got to go out and fight climate change. <clears throat> From the BBC, we read... Um, it's true. For the last 11 years, we have not have we have not observed any increase in global temperatures, and our climate models did not forecast it. Even though man-made carbon dioxide, the gas that is thought to be responsible for warming our planet, has continued to rise. So, what on earth is going on? That's right. Um, it might come as a surprise to you, but um, the fact is that the warmest year recorded globally was not 2008 or 2007 or even 2009. It was 1998. So there we go. You got the Archbishop of Canterbury and all these religious leaders joining to battle climate change. And it sounds to me like uh, that battle was won 11 years ago. I mean, if we haven't already won the battle against global warming, then why hasn't the planet been warming? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Rowan. You need, probably need to just forget the whole uh, battling global warming thing and get back to what you're called to do, and that's proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Just, you know, something I'm saying, you know, something I've noticed in the Bible. Talk about too little, too late. Got to fight them Nazis. You go. We have a moral imperative to stop Hitler. Yeah, we did that already. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm next segment here. Right? So I interviewed Todd Wilkin earlier today, and we're going to go ahead and play that audio, and we're going to be discussing. An article he wrote entitled "Bible Believing Liberals." Now, if it, it, I know it sounds oxymoronic, and uh, like the, those of you who are members of the Pirate Christian Crew, uh, well, you'll have access to this uh, in our cove, 
and uh, so that you can read the article. It's a fine, fine article by Todd Wilkin, and very provocative in, 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 in thinking there, because he's dealing with a different definition of liberal than you may be uh, familiar with, and I think he's absolutely spot-on right. Uh, let, let, let me cue, up the, cue this up, and this was my interview with Todd Wilkin earlier today. All right, I got Todd Wilkin from uh, Issues Etc. on the line today, and we're going to be talking about an article he wrote a few years ago entitled Bible-Believing Liberals. Uh, Todd, welcome to Fighting for the Faith. Well, Chris, thank you very much for having me. This is the, I think this is the first time I've ever had you on uh, Fighting for the Faith. I believe, I mean, you've been on my show many times, but uh, now the tables are turned. <laughs> I'm not nearly as skilled of an interviewer as you are, so you'll have to uh, <clears throat> grant me some grace as I stumble through this. Uh, but I was recently reading your uh, your article again, Bible believing liberals. I, I just spent, you know, I just went to two different emergent conferences, and it doesn't get any more liberal than the emergence. And uh, your the, your article title is very provocative because it says Bible believing liberals, but I think many people think that denying the Bible is a necessary component of liberal theology. And uh, you seem to be working with a completely different um, definition of liberal than um, I think a lot of people would operate under. What is your definition of liberal? Well, I remember when I wrote the article, uh, one of the kind of uh, chief apologists for uh, Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church out there in uh, California and is, uh, I think his official biographer, Rich Abanis, who is actually a, a friend and a frequent guest on my program, uh, he took real issue with uh, me uh, not only implying but explicitly saying that uh, Rick Warren is, in fact, theologically a liberal. Okay. And that's because um, uh, you're right. My definition of liberal is really drawn not from kind of the common conception, which is, well, liberals deny the Bible, they're in favor of abortion on demand, they want, uh, you know, state health care, all these kind of um, more, uh, uh, what should we say, these kind of obvious definitions that get attached to liberal. Mm -hmm. When it comes to theological liberalism, uh, what I think the best definition, and the definition I use in the article, is uh, not um, someone's views on social moral issues, because Rick Warren is pro-life, he, uh, at least for the time being, con still concedes that the Bible condemns homosexuality on all those big hot-button issues that usually are used in the culture to define conservative and liberal. He certainly is conservative, and that's what Rich Bonas said to me. He said, come on, Wilkin, uh, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Warren is a conservative. He's pro-life. He's uh, pro-marriage. He's all these things, which I concede. Mm -hmm. But the definition that I'm operating with I think is a pretty accurate one. That is, liberalism when it comes to our theology is how you regard the Word of God and whether or not, and this is key, whether or not you take your cue for uh, what the Church teaches and what the Church practices primarily from the culture okay. uh, over against the clear Word of God and the clear historic teaching of the Christian Church. And in that sense, Rick Warren has very much in common with guys like John Shelby Spong, mm -hmm. you know, big notorious liberal. They both believe that the Church has to follow the uh, guiding star of the culture, of, of pop culture, or it will die. Both of these men have claimed in remarkably similar statements that if the Church doesn't change, that is, 
change how it does things, what it does. It ultimately, uh, its, its central message, then it will perish. And whether you have John Shelby Spong saying, if the church doesn't change, it will die, or whether or not you have Rick Warren saying, if the church doesn't change, it will die, mm-hmm. it, they are indistinguishable from one another in their view that the culture, rather than the clear word of God and the clear historic teaching of the Christian church, should guide what the church says and what the church does. Okay. All right. Let me see if I can square your definition then with uh, uh, something Harry Emerson Fosdick said in his uh, sermon, uh, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And uh, obviously I can't do a Fosdick soundbite because I don't think we have the soundbite, but I do have the transcript of his his sermon, and uh, I want to get your feedback on, at least on this aspect of it, and he says, um, there, he says, now there are many, uh, there are multitudes of reverent Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds. And the new knowledge he's talking about is the new great mass of knowledge that has to do with uh, the physical universe, uh, the origins of species, uh, the forces of nature. Uh, there's, so there's all kinds of new laws and uh, new information that's come about as a result of the modern culture. And he says that there are multitudes of reverent Christians who've been able, unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds and their Christian faith in another. They have been sure that all truth comes from one God and his revelation, not therefore from irreverence or caprice uh, or destructive zeal, but for the sake of intellectual and spiritual integrity, uh, they they basically seem to uh, they they see that this new knowledge in terms of the Christian faith and see the Christian faith in terms of this new knowledge is that what you're talking about here? Well, yeah. I'm, what I'm talking about is um, uh, that there are Christians who are in fact theologically liberal with their because of how they view God's word and what they view um, the nature of the church the nature of the, uh, the doctrine of the Church and the practice of the Church. Mm-hmm. They are theologically liberal, but they think they're conservative okay. because on social moral issues, they do line up with the Bible. So what I'd like to ask guys like Rick Warren and others that I think fall into this category is, look, um, if you think that these moral truths are unshakable, and if you think that uh, the definition of, uh, say, marriage is unshakable based upon God's Word, mm-hmm. why won't you concede that the definition of the Church is too? Um, you're willing to fight to uh, keep marriage, the institution of marriage, from being redefined, right? but you are fighting as hard as you can to redefine the institution of the Church. And the Church's definition is just as biblical as the definition of marriage. Okay. So, so they're... You think they're confusing uh, social conservatism with theological conservatism, then? Precisely. I think they are equating the two. Okay. And in that sense, they I think this is really a, 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 a sin of inattention, uh, a sin of being distracted and saying, look, uh, pro-life, check, pro-marriage, check, um, um, now, what does the pastor preach on Sunday morning? Well, now, come on. That depends on the audience. Okay. Um, uh, or that depends on what the people think they need to hear or the current issue of the day. I would answer, look, just as firm as, uh, as the Bible is on things like marriage or life, 
it is equally firm on what the church is, what the church is to preach, and what the church is to practice. Okay. And that is, we don't deviate from the central teaching of, of Scripture, which is Christ and Him crucified for sinners, mm-hmm. to pursue other topics on Sunday morning, regardless of how relevant they may be in the minds of the audience. We don't do that because Christ has given the church a message to preach, and that message, um, please forgive me for sounding, you know, kind of uh, hard-nosed about this, but that message dictates also what the church is going to practice on Sunday morning. These are, these, uh, you know, the preaching and the practice of the church are not these changeable categories that we can uh, move around depending on uh, who the audience is or what we think is the most relevant topic or what people's felt needs are. The whole notion of felt needs is, in fact, at its very base, a liberal notion. Okay. It is, in essence, saying that the audience is sovereign. Who does that sound like? That sounds like George Barna to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's actually come out and said that the audience is sovereign. And, uh, and, and uh, this is exactly, in the social and cultural and political realm, this is exactly the argument that many are making for, say, uh, gay marriage. They're saying, look, the American people need to decide this. The American people don't get upset about homosexuals living together in lifelong unions. The audience is sovereign. Mm-hmm. Let's let the people decide. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I would, I would contend, of course, the majority of American people are asleep at the switch on that issue. They think they don't care, but if they're faced with it, they actually will care. But that, that, laying that aside... Um, um, it really is a definition, you know, this definition I'm using for liberal, and why I call them Bible-believing, because they really do believe the Bible. Right. They're just willing to let the culture have a voice in guiding the church in its preaching and practice more than, than, uh, than they are willing to let the Bible determine those things. You know, I, it's funny. I, I, I just read uh, an article. It, it goes way back, actually. And uh, the gentleman was complaining about the fact that uh, the liberal preaching in his area, and he lived in a rural agricultural area, and he attended one of these churches, and he actually heard a sermon on the parable of the seeds, and it turned the pastor turned that into practical advice on how to better grow your crops, really, in real life. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually, you know, this is uh, um, not the first time that uh, Christians have said, um, look, um, who, who's sitting out here? It's a bunch of farmers. It was during the Prussian Union back in, uh, in Germany uh-huh. in the uh, early 19th century where the political powers in Germany forced together Lutheran churches and Reformed churches, they did this as a political move. They forced them to, together into what were called union churches. Mm-hmm. And in these union churches, um, because kind of the very nascent liberalism was catching hold politically and theologically in those days, right. it was not unheard of for pastors to preach about proper care of farm animals. Because after all, their audience were farmers, and that's what they cared about, and that's what they needed to know. And, of course, they went searching, as Rick Warren does nowadays, kind of cherry-picking passages that could be, you know, uh, good farm advice. And they thought this was faithful biblical preaching, and they would have contended at the time, look, we're quoting from the Bible. 
We're not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. Right. What they had forgotten is that the Bible has a hub, it has a center of gravity, and it has a central teaching that is to be the sum and substance of Christian preaching. And while the Bible, you could glean good animal husbandry advice out of the Bible if you really tried, it's kind of um, the ultimate example of missing the point. Right. So, okay, the, the, the way the argument goes today, though, is, is that the, the, you're talking about churches that you, they can point you to uh, what, for all intents and purposes, is a, con, is a faithful, orthodox confession of faith. It's usually on their website. And the pastor would say, stop arguing with me, Wilkin. I believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. I am not denying any of the central teachings of Christianity or even the Lutheran confessions. It's just that if I don't find a way to appeal to these people's felt needs, they're not going to come into church. And when I get them there, they're going to, I'll give them the gospel. You, you know, it, it, what's wrong with you? I mean, why can't I tell them three easy steps on how to have a, uh, a more fulfilling career or, or challenge them for a 30-day sex challenge? I mean, don't you understand? Marriages are important and people, there's marriages falling apart all over the country. It, it sounds to me like you're, you're, you're just, you're being really narrowly divisive here and not seeing that this is a valid way of reaching people uh, and making them feel the love of God before I give them the gospel. Well, you know, I, I have two responses. One, you know, when has the when does the Bible, the apostles, when does Christ ever, ever advocate bait and switch? He never advocates bring them in with one thing and then kind of uh, while once they've been lulled into a sense of security there and kind of feeling comfortable, then introduce them to Jesus. St. Paul says, I've become all things to all men. And so to the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the, to the, uh, uh, to the, um, to the Greek, I became like a Greek. Um, and he says, in essence, I accommodate myself to those to whom I'm preaching the gospel. But it doesn't mean he ever accommodates the message. He never accommodates the gospel to his audience. In fact, he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel. I am all for um, giving people more legroom in the pews or the chairs they're sitting in. I'm all for uh, providing them with good sound systems so they can actually hear the message that's being preached. I'm all for all the things that... Uh, you know, removing all these obstacles to people hearing the gospel. But in the end, the church um, does not have a message that is, uh, that is uh, good advice on how to improve your life. If you want that, you can go any place. You can listen to Dr. Phil. You could actually, I mean, if you wanted to, you could probably go to the local mosque, and they've got some pretty good advice on how to live well. Uh, in your family, if it's a more liberal kind of mosque, you could go to a synagogue. The Christian church has Jesus. What do marriages need? Yes, marriages are important. Marriages need Jesus. All the advice in the world, it may outwardly improve my marriage, but all the advice in the world isn't ultimately going to save my marriage. It's not going to save me, for sure. And this notion that we can somehow uh, draw them in with one thing that may well in and of itself be important, and then later give them the gospel, seems to me completely out of step with the pattern set down by the apostles and by Christ himself. Um, it, it is never recommended 
by them, and we never find them doing it. In fact, we find them doing the opposite. We find them, when they preach, going straight to the heart of the matter, preaching Christ and Him crucified up front, Mm -hmm. and often being rejected for it. So this concern, if I don't get them in with this, this message that people consider to be relevant, I'll never have the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. If St. Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles had followed that advice, then we certainly would have found them hooking the people with all sorts of interesting, because marriages mattered them too. Yeah. You know, marriages were important then too. They would have been hooking the people with three, you know, handy principles for improving your marriage. And then a little later they'd say, oh, and by the way, kind of the real point of bringing you in here was to talk to you about this Jesus fellow. But they don't do that. They never do that. There is no example of that whatsoever in Christ's preaching, in the preaching of the, of the uh, apostles. When, they, when Christ does preach uh, in matters of morality, um, if you look at it very carefully, he doesn't give a lot of advice. And if you, even if you want to call it advice, man, I'll tell you what, it's pretty hard to follow. And he calls for things like perfection. He calls for loving your enemies. These are principles that are easy to follow that uh, lead to an improved life. These are condemnations, ultimately, that drive us to Christ's own mercy mm-hmm. and our need for him to be our substitute at the cross. Uh, Mike Horton says it, and I think he's, he's quite correct. Mike Horton of the White Horse Inn, he says... Whatever you use to bring them in, you're going to have to use to keep them in. Right. And this is precisely why, in the churches that have adopted the bait-and-switch mentality, we'll bring them in with one thing, and then later, sometime later, we'll give them Jesus. In actual practice, Sunday after Sunday, what they do is keep preaching all the bait. They keep throwing out the bait. And in some cases, the switch never occurs. Mm. In some cases, there are people didn't, I think it was Saddleback, not Saddleback, it was Willow Creek, recently did a survey of its own people, and what they discovered was that a lot of them um, um, were finding all this advice to be wearing kind of thin. They wanted something more. Right. And, And many of them um, knew all about how to keep their marriage together, but were, in other respects, biblically illiterate. And especially with regard to the gospel, I think perhaps one of the most disturbing things they might find is if they simply went through their people and asked them, um, what is the gospel? They might, um, uh, sad to say, discover that their people may not be able to give them a coherent biblical answer. Right. All right, we're going to pause right there and uh, t- you know pay some bills. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue with uh, my uh, interview with uh, Todd Wilkin of Issues Etc. on Bible-believing liberals. So you definitely do not want to miss the end of this interview. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Back and fighting for the, or follow me on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there is, well, you know, pirate Christian. Notice the theme? We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Saddlestance Church, where we give your itching ears what they want to hear. Here at Saddlestance, we have numerous worship venues your family can learn to love and enjoy. For all those rural western boys, we have the Cowboy Bar meeting on Sunday at high noon at the Purpose Driven Bar and Grill. We play a wide variety of honky-tonk and country music for your listening enjoyment. Directly after the Cowboy Bar Worship Service, we have Christian line dancing in the bar next door to the worship area. Are you a nerd looking for a worship service that understands your special needs? Then look no further than the Geek Squad venue that meets in our server room on Saturdays at 3 a.m. We praise the Lord with music from Devo, Boingo Boingo, the B-52s, and other similar artists. Are you a thespian whose world revolves around the stage of life? Then come to our Broadway worship service that starts every Friday at 6 p.m. when the curtain rises in the Purpose Palladium. We only use the most relevant and heart-moving music from Broadway for every worship service. If you prefer a more traditional way of worship, come on down to the Latin Mass venue on Sundays at 9.15 a.m. We're located in the Prayer Labyrinth, where you'll be able to soothe your soul with classic Gregorian chants and incense. Want to go to a church service your wife and daughters will enjoy? Then by no means hesitate to travel to the magical place we so lovingly call Purpose Land. The worship services take place in Princess Purpose Castle, starting at 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings, where attendees will be moved by songs of love and harmony by some of Walt Disney's most beloved princess characters. Still looking for something that can make Jesus rock your world? Then layer on the face paint, blacken those nails, and come to Saddle Senses Twisted. Worship service. We crank up the amps every Saturday night at midnight and let the death metal go. We play all the greatest hits from bands like Metallica, Megadeth, and other artists.
Not everyone has the same taste in worship style. That's why we've put together different worship venues on the Saddle Stench campus each weekend. At these venues, you'll get the same man-centered, biblically watered-down, pop-psych, self-help teaching as everyone else to a live video feed from the main service, but with a smaller, more intimate style. If you plan to attend any of these worship services at Saddle Stench Church, give us a call at 1-666-555-1212. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Morning. I completely agree with Martin Luther when he said it's better to be divided by the truth than united by error. All right, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio, and right now we're looking for 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio crew. That's right, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. By joining, what you're doing is you're signing up to have a mere $6.95 automatically deducted from your account every month. And once we get to a 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew, uh, Pirate Christian Radio is guaranteed to at least have on a monthly basis the minimum that we need to be able to operate. Kind of an important thing, you think? <clears throat> we like paying our bills. Anyway, uh, you can join the crew by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. And when you do, uh, check your email. Uh, you, you will shortly receive an email from cove at piratechristianradio.com giving you uh, access, a username and password, and a link to the Pirate Christian Cove, uh, which is a growing treasure trove and anthology of theological uh, and doctrinal and good biblical resources designed to help you uh, grow in your Christian faith and go deeper with your understanding of Scripture. So, And uh, by the way, uh, the uh, article here from Todd Wilkin uh, entitled 
Bible-believing liberals. It'll be there in the cove uh, for you all uh, to read uh, after today's program. So you definitely want to uh, read that. So, again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew. And if you'd like to donate above and beyond, again, we really thank you and are humbled by the people who uh, do uh, donate uh, amounts greater than $6.95. You just do, to do so, you click on the Donate button or you make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here is the balance of my interview with uh, Todd Wilkin of Issues Etc. on Bible-believing liberals. Now, let, let, let me kind of follow up on, on this. You, you point out the fact that uh, Jesus never, you never see him uh, doing bait and switch. The apostles kind of always get to the heart of the matter and preach Christ and him crucified for our sins. Um, didn't Jesus give advice regarding whether, I mean, if somebody didn't accept the message, didn't he give us advice on what to do with that? Uh, how do you mean? Uh, well, didn't he say, shake the dust off your feet and move on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, he sends his disciples to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Uh And it's couched in this shorthand. This is Matthew 10 and elsewhere. It's, it's couched in the shorthand, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. And of course, that is, that is Jesus' shorthand for tell everybody that I've arrived. Okay. That I'm here, that I am the Messiah, and that I am the one that they are to trust um, as, as Savior. Okay, and he says, go out and preach this. And if they receive you, good. And if they don't, move on. Uh, don't don't stand there saying, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's back up. Um, Jesus has some really, really good moral principles. Mm-hmm. That would, that, and it's, I know you don't like the whole Savior aspect of this, this kingdom of God stuff or this repentance stuff. Um, so before we get to that, let me sell you on, um, on the benefits of being a Christian, even before you're a Christian. Now, I'm sounding there very much like Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels says that's why they preach the way they preach. That's why they, in essence, hide the gospel from their hearers Sunday mm-hmm. after Sunday. Because, he says, look, we, what we're trying to do is sell. He doesn't use the word sell. I think he uses some other more subtle word. But we're trying to sell uh, the seeker on the benefits of being a Christian. Show them how good the Christian life is. And then later when they're just just chomping at the bit, come on, you know, I must have this Christian life. I need my marriage to be improved. You know, I want to have a balanced checkbook. I, I want my kids to, to grow up and get good jobs. Then we can tell them about Jesus. Um, again, there's no biblical example of any of this. Right. And it's certainly not what Christ commanded his apostles or his church to do. Uh, he sends them out and he says, look, it's going to be tough. You're, it's going to be like you're the sheep and they're the wolves going to be dangerous you'll probably eventually die for this i golly i just don't remember saint paul bemoaning the fact that he's suffering for the sake of his biblical principles i don't i don't hear saint paul saying that he's imprisoned for the sake of of the last sermon he preached on marriage or sex you I mean the, doing that. the apostle paul was not thrown in prison for uh, challenging the people of uh, athens to uh, have sex with their wives for 30 days <laughs> No, I really don't think he was. You know, I've said this, and I think this is good advice for any pastor every Sunday when they step into the pulpit, all right? If this were the last sermon you were ever going to preach, the last sermon you were ever going to preach, because outside church, waiting for the final church bells to ring, is a group of Roman soldiers ready to rush in when you're done and drag you off to prison 
or maybe even just kill you on the spot, and you know you've got 30 minutes to preach your last sermon to these people, what would you preach? Now, I think any Christian pastor worth his salt would drop all the sex surveys, would drop all the advice on how to be nice, would drop all that stuff and say, golly, i got to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins for the sake of Christ. Mm -hmm. If this is the last sermon I'm ever going to preach, I better make sure I get to the heart of the matter. My advice for pastors is, well, every sermon, preach it like it's the last one you're ever going to preach. Because you don't know that it isn't the last one you're ever going to preach. Well, you don't even know if it's not it, it, the last one for somebody sitting in the congregation that day. Absolutely. And if you look at St. Paul, this is kind of the urgency that, with which he approaches his preaching task. He's like, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. I am compelled, he says, to preach the gospel. And he's talking about the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins for the sake of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. He says, I was determined to know nothing among you, O Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. Far be it, now he's talking to the Galatians, far be it for me to boast about anything um, other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is there this sense of urgency? Well, because Paul had been dragged out of the synagogue a couple times. You know, I imagine Paul's a human being, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul made mistakes. I imagine there may have been a time he might have experimented with, you know, I'm going to do some good Christian life preaching this time in the synagogue. And then when he walked out and the, and, uh, the Jews were like, well, oh, great, thanks a lot. And he started thinking, now, wait a minute. They loved this. But when I went in and argued with them uh, Sabbath after Sabbath that Jesus is the Christ, they stoned me. Mm-hmm. And then he remembers back to the time when he's called on that Damascus road, and the risen Christ says, after his, uh, before his baptism to Ananias, and Paul certainly must have heard this from Ananias when he was baptized, Jesus says to Ananias, go get, go get Paul, or Saul, find him and baptize him. He's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles for me. And the Lord says to Ananias, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right. Paul probably at that time said, no, wait a minute. I preached the cross, and I suffered. I preached good kind of quasi-Christian Jewish living principles, mm-hmm. and they loved me and invited me back next time. Yeah. Which one brought the suffering that Christ promised? And I think that's a good measure for the church today. Why is it these churches are growing? Maybe we should couch, couch the question like this. Why is it these churches aren't suffering? Right. Oh, that's a great question. Wow. Is the, the church throughout its history has been a suffering church. We suffer for the sake of the gospel. We don't, make, we don't try and stick out like a sore thumb just for the sake of drawing suffering and persecution. But, I, look, I just can't imagine um, some of these churches that have laid aside the gospel for preaching moral principles and in the, in the improved Christian life. I can't imagine anyone saying, you know, that pastor needs to go to jail. <laughs> he yeah. needs to go to jail for preaching that. Right. The culture loves it. They eat it up. It is innocuous. It's harmless, and it will never get you crucified. You know what's the funny? The cross, on the other hand, gets Christians crucified every day. It gets Christians killed, imprisoned, and all those things every day. Right. So pastors need to, you know, what has happened? This liberal notion that when we say the culture will dictate to us what we preach and what we practice, you you um, 
you know, you find that in mainline liberal churches where they say the culture calls the shots. You find it now in these Bible-believing liberal churches where they say the culture calls the shots. Uh-huh. When you do that, guess what? The culture, you fit right in. You fade into the wallpaper. And this is why, by the way, Chris, I think that what we might see here, and you, I think you know more about this than I do since you've studied so intensely in the emergent movement, but as the, uh, as the influence of emergence, which is this par excellence, yeah. um, as, the, as the influence of emergence grows in mainline megachurches and church growth congregations, I think we will find that those churches will begin, slowly but surely, to capitulate to the culture, even on the social moral issues, too. And I imagine, and I am willing to predict at this point, that in about 25 years, these big churches that uh, have taken their direction from the culture rather than from uh, God's Word and the historic teachings of Christianity, um, I think we will find them... um, having kind of come full circle, and like emergence is right now, I mean, these guys who are kind of brave enough to say it out loud, Mm -hmm. we will find them indistinguishable, except in their music style. We'll find them indistinguishable on the social and moral culture uh, issues from uh, mainline old-style liberalism. I think think they'll just fade into the wallpaper. Mm. Um, the, The emergent guys are kind of the uh, only honest men in this movement, where they're saying, look, if we're going to take this view that uh, the audience is sovereign, the culture calls the shots in what we preach and what we practice, we better get in line with the culture on homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, no one's going to take us seriously. Mm-hmm. The irony here, Chris, is it's all done for the sake of, quote-unquote, carrying out the mission of the church. Well, you know, to carry out the mission of the church, you've got to be the church. Right. And when you abandon being the church, you can do whatever you want to for the sake of the mission. You're not carrying out the mission of the church anymore. Right. You know, I find it interesting that uh, as you watch how all this plays out, they, we, we call it the, uh, uh, the style wars or the worship wars. And it seems like the culture isn't offended by those who are out there preaching the felt needs, but it's, uh, it's your, your basic you know, grassroots, well-catechized Christian who understands what Scripture says, who's offended by what these churches are. Doesn't that seem a little backwards to you? <laughs> yeah, this this is more offensive to the to the church, to historic Christianity, than it is to the culture. Yeah, and uh, you know, th- I think these people would probably say, "Hey, we're kind of like a Luther." You know, <laughs> the reason the old stuffy traditionalists are upset with us is because we're forging a new path um, of relevance in this world, and they're just stuck in the past. Well, you know what? Luther never said that. In fact, Luther and the other Lutheran reformers said the opposite. They didn't say, hey, we're pioneers, and those stodgy old guys in, in, Vatic, in the Vatican, they just can't get with the times. You know, we're the next big wave, and they're just stuck in the past. Never. Luther said, we're the ones. We, the reformers, are stuck in the past. Yeah. It is, the, it is the Roman Church that has introduced innovations and abuses and all sorts of new programs and ideas that have occluded the gospel, that have hid the gospel and buried the gospel under layer after layer of uh, you know, bad ideas poorly implemented. And we, the Reformers, are just, we just can't, we're just stuck in the past. We've got to go back to the age of the apostles, to, the, to the, what the Church Fathers taught 
And, you know, they actually wrote this stuff down. You know, it's a, the Lutheran Confessions is nothing more than a chronicle of these men saying, yep. look, you know, the Church of Rome is moving ahead into the future. I mean, full steam ahead. Uh-huh. It's got all the resources. It's attracting people. It has managed to take to to kill two birds with one stone. It is the Church of Rome has managed to implement the most successful church growth program ever called indulgences. Yep. Get the people in. What do they want? They want time off of purgatory. They want time off of purgatory for their friends and their loved ones too. That's their felt need. Let's meet it. And guess what? It also has raised a ton of money and we're able to build St. Peter's in Rome. Mm. And and the reformers say, you know, we know that they're moving ahead into the future, but we're stuck in the past. We cannot let go of the apostles' testimony and teaching. We can't let go of the faithful testimony of the church and the church fathers. And they say that the center of the church's life is not in these big programs um, or the felt needs of the people. They say, the apostles and the fathers all say, that the central teaching of Christianity is the cross. So Luther ends up saying some very ancient things like the cross is our theology. Do you think Rick Warren could say, honestly, with a straight face, I mean, you've actually sat across the desk from the man. Mm-hmm. Do you think he could honestly say, looking at all of his books, looking at all of his programs, looking at what is preached and practiced in his churches, could he honestly say the cross is our theology? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he would have to say, I, I don't know what my the, what our where our theology is going to be next year because we haven't taken a survey for that yet. Yeah, that's and there you go. Uh, uh, I think a really good example of of uh, of of what I call Bible believing liberalism. He takes the Bible very seriously. Mm-hmm. He believes it is inerrant. He believes it is inspired. He believes that it is God breathed. And he believes that it is God's word in its entirety. I know he does. Yep. Um, and yet, he doesn't believe it's sufficient um, to keep the church relevant today. And he doesn't believe it's sufficient to draw an audience. And he doesn't think it's sufficient, ultimately, sadly, when he says stuff like, we need a reformation of deeds, not creeds. And when he says stuff like, it takes more than faith to really please God. It takes faith that expresses itself in love. Mm-hmm. Man, that sounds so Roman Catholic. I mean, the Reformation is being undone. Yeah, that's, um, that's not... Im- he doesn't believe it's sufficient to save. Right. If I think if he really did believe that the cross, the message of the cross alone, is sufficient to save, um, and not only to save, but to draw all men to Christ um, in spite of its scandal... Mm-hmm. Um, I think if he really, truly believed that, next Sunday he would get up on the stage and shock his audience beyond belief and probably lose, I don't know, half to three-quarters of them mm-hmm. by saying, folks, from now on, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And every Sunday from now on, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to convince you from the clear word of God that you are a miserable, rotten sinner who has no hope except Jesus Christ and the life he lived for you. I'm going to do it Sunday in, Sunday out. I'm going to be diligent in it. I am going to teach and rebuke and admonish, and I am going to continue to lay Christ before you, uh, placard him before you each and every Sunday and before myself, um, 
is the only hope we have in this world, the only hope for your marriage, the only hope for your, your, uh, your, your parenting, the only hope for your work and your job, uh, and your only hope for eternal life. And I'm going to do it Sunday in and Sunday out. And look, <laughs> I, I would gladly welcome him into the fold of historic Christianity if he were to do that, and he would find his numbers dwindling, and he'd have to come to that point where he says, um, you know, um, which is more important? being faithful to Christ and his command to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, or how many people I have in here on Sunday morning and how much money they gather together for me to run the program. Um, it's odd and ironic that while you have this kind of compromise taking place in American evangelicalism that considers itself the epitome of the Reformation, we have men today like Pope Benedict XVI. And don't get me wrong, the Roman Catholic Church still has all its old errors and abuses. Uh -huh. it, needs, it still needs a Reformation bad. Um, but we have guys like Pope Benedict XVI, before he was elected, saying, you know what? The Catholic Church, if it is to be faithful, will probably have to get ready to be a lot smaller than it is. In order to be faithful, we're going to have to get, be prepared to shrink. Now, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow yeah. when you are the leader of... Of, um, of one billion, not hundreds of thousands, not tens of thousands, not thousands, one billion Christians worldwide, and you say to them, guys, you know, we've had a boon, but if we're going to be faithful, we've got to be prepared to get smaller. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Pope saying that, yeah. and Rick Warren is saying, look, we can get bigger, and I know how to do it, and I know how to make your church bigger, too. Just follow my advice. Well, and guess what? Your church will grow, and guess what? They do. They do grow. What gets left behind Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon, gets left behind in the songs, gets left behind in the prayers, in the teaching. What gets left behind is the saving office of Christ. Right. And ultimately, they've discovered they can grow the church without the gospel. And, and, it, and, it, and they can actually grow the church better if they keep the Jesus who lived and suffered and died for sinners in the backstage. Mm -hmm. They'll bring them out occasionally, but if they keep them backstage, then, the, then their churches grow a lot faster. When the clear and regular preaching of the gospel becomes an impediment to your church growing, something's wrong. All right. Well, Either your church is not growing the way God wants it to grow, or you're not a church. Right. Those are the only two answers there. Well, you make a great point in your article, and we'll kind of leave off on this side. You, you point out that uh, these Bible-believing liberals, these people who are conservative socially, uh, will argue and fight uh, to keep uh, the Ten Commandments you know, on a court building, and at the same time, uh, the cross is mysteriously missing from their uh, megachurch campus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do not, for some reason... Um they they think that it would be the biggest travesty in the world if a little plaque in a courtroom someplace in Alabama that has the Ten Commandments written on it were taken down. But uh, the cross, not only the, the symbol of the cross, but the message of the cross is conspicuously absent in their preaching, the prayers, their songs, Sunday after Sunday. Uh -huh. And um, they will fight tooth and nail for certain principles that may in fact be biblical in the culture, 
But when it comes to the principle, the unifying principle of all of the Bible, the message of Christ and Him crucified, they just really don't mind if the pastor leaves that out mm-hmm. of, um, of his preaching, or, or if the music director leaves it out of the songs he picks or the prayers they pray. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, one of the other things I like, a little piece of advice I like to give to pastors is don't give Jesus the su- Sunday off. <laughs> he, he, never give Jesus Sunday off. Right. If you stand to get up in the pulpit, whether you're Rick Warren or some guy who just, you know, is a Rick Warren wannabe, one of these Lutheran pastors out there who fancies himself, you know, in, in the small pond of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, they can be a big fish like Rick Warren is a big fish in a big pond. If, if you're contemplating this Sunday, giving Jesus the Sunday off, if you're contemplating preaching a sermon that makes just as much sense without Jesus and his saving work for sinners as it does with it, uh, stop. Right. And... Uh, um, before you get in that pulpit, ask yourself that question I asked before. If this was the last sermon you were going to preach, would you be preaching uh, about having better sex with your wife? Or would you be preaching about Jesus Christ and the life he lived for both you and your wife and every sinner? Would you be preaching about somehow trying to make your life better now? Or would you be preaching about a life that was lived for you? Um, and it was laid down at the cross for you and taken up again in the resurrection. And I, as I said before, any pastor worth his salt, I think that can still seriously call himself a Christian, would have to say, you know what, I think Jesus should take precedence over any kind of good advice I can cook up. Great stuff. Thank you, Todd, for uh, coming on Fighting for the Faith. Very provocative. We're actually going to stick your uh, article in the uh, our Pirate Christian Cove. <laughs> which is oh, our, cool. our growing anthology of good theological articles and papers and, and resources. And uh, it'll be there at the Cove for our listeners to, uh, to uh, read and comment on. Again, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to this. Just great article, good stuff, thank, and thank you for all that you do there at Issues Etc. Well, thank you, Chris, and keep up the good work. All right, you too. So that was my interview with uh, Todd Wilkin. What would you all think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Again, no babysitting requests. I do not honor those at the moment. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can. It's uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When we come back, we're going to do our uh, sermon review. So we got lots of good stuff coming up. How this would go with this uh, interview with Wilkins. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Oh, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. The Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we're back. I think I finally worked my way out from under that pile ice. You... When you're sick, you fall behind. I don't know if you've noticed this, but emails never stop, even when you have a flu. I had this huge pile of work. I had to bury my, dig myself out from under. I was buried under it. I think we're going to finally get the podcast updated tonight. Woot! <laughs> All right, so what did you guys think of my interview with uh, Todd Wilkin on Bible-believing liberals? You know, his definition of liberal is quite interesting. His definition basically are those who change the message to make it compatible with the culture. And uh, that's what we're seeing. Uh, so, I mean, if, if Wilkins right, then uh, uh, Rick Warren is a Bible-believing liberal. Uh, Bill Hybels is a Bible-believing liberal. Joe Osteen, you know, same thing. <laughs> with uh, with uh, although big asterisks after Joel Osteen's name because <laughs> he's word faith and oh boy that was terrible that sermon review last night 
All right, so keeping in the theme of Bible-believing liberal, I decided that we would uh, <laughs> give you an example of um, Bible-believing liberal sermons, and that would be Erwin McManus of uh, Mosaic, another one of these purpose-driven, uh, seeker-driven rock stars. And the name of this uh, ser- sermon is Relational Intelligence, the Energy Carrier. I, that's the name of the sermon. <laughs> doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> Relational intelligence, the energy carrier. I don't know what that means. And I even previewed this sermon prior to the program today. So with that in mind, hang on. Got, <clears throat> from the good, the bad, the ugly. That's right. Author. Erwin McManus. Purpose-driven rock star, pastor of Mosaic. He's going to be preaching, as I've already said, a sermon entitled Relational Intelligent, the Energy Carrier. I, I just don't know what this means. And yet, Erwin McManus is uh, is a staple at uh, seeker-driven conferences like Catalyst, Innovate. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that, they, isn't it funny that they always have uh, conferences named like that? Innovate, Catalyst. How about Heresate? Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's 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 kill the music. All right, so, so without any further ado, here is um, Relational Intelligence, the Energy Carrier. I don't even know what this means. The following is a presentation of Mosaic, a community of faith, love, and hope. A community of faith, love, and hope. Nothing there about Jesus. For more information, please visit mosaic.org. Oh, it just sounds so postmodern with that music. It may seem strange that we're doing a series on relational intelligence. Why in the world would we talk about, well, something like this? Yeah, that's a great question, Erwin. Considering your job is to actually preach the word and, you know, proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. And as we just, uh, you know, in my interview with Todd Wilkin, uh, realized that uh, Jesus really shouldn't be taking any Sundays off. Uh, you know, when a pastor ascends to preach uh, in a Christian church. So, you know, relational intelligence, just don't see it as a biblical theme there, guy. Um, kind of like preaching about the importance of, uh, you know, uh, animal husbandry or, um, you know, how to get better yields on your crops. Uh, we continue. I think the reality is that most of the problems we have in our lives, most, most of the challenges we face, most of the conflicts that we find ourselves in. Most- Would they be because of sin? Uh, the fact that we are dead by nature, uh, that we are sinful by nature, rebelling against God, uh, turned in on ourselves, worshiping ourselves or gods of our own making. That, 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 I just want to finish the sentence for him. Most of the disappointment that life seems to bring us. But we, we try to frame them in sort of these cataclysmic, cosmic kind of things that happen to us. But I think 99% of the problems we find ourselves in would be solved if we just had a little more relational and emotional intelligence in life. 99%? So, this, uh, 
So there you go. This is a 99% cure for the, the, the disappointments that you're experiencing in your life. It's just having relational intelligence, uh, which, by the way, is not a biblical thing. Uh, we continue. If we just thought through our choices and our engagement of the people in the life around us. So this is a really important subject. And, of course, we've been building on Steve Saccone's new book on relational intelligence. And You've been building on what? Steve Saccone's new book, Relational Intelligence. You've been building on... Um, is, uh, is, was Steve Saccone, uh, was he inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book? Uh, is this on par with the Gospels? Is this on par with the epistles of Peter, Paul, Jude, and James? Is this on par with the writings of the prophets? Steve Saccone's new book on relational intelligence? Will we find it at the tail end of our Bible now, right after the book of Revelation? If not, then why are you preaching on it? And, and now we get to harass him for the rest of his life because he can't ever do anything that's relationally stupid. Because we go, oh, you're the relational intelligence guy. And uh, so now he's pretty much in huge trouble forever. Because once you, you, know, you write something and you, and you begin to communicate it, everybody holds you to a different standard. But I wonder how many of us have taken as much time to develop our ability to understand each other as we do other things. We get degrees in business and accounting. We get film degrees and science and biology degrees. And you know, we get MBAs and PhDs. And hopefully you study the scriptures and you learn theology and all these things. But we spend so little time learning how to relate to each other in a way that... I am not hearing this. This is supposedly a sermon, by the way, a Christian sermon at a Christian church. And uh, the thing that just got mentioned in passing was you, you get degrees in theology, but how much time do you spend focusing on emotional intelligence? Oh, man. The uh, the irony of this is just too much. Um, so doctrine, theology, the Bible, at, in during this sermon at uh, Mosaic Church... Uh, that's the stuff that yeah yeah well you ha you you focus on things like doctrine and theology but what about what, what how much of a difference would it make if you focused on relational intelligence and by the way that's a new book uh, so this is kind of a new theory apparently I don't know we continue actually makes us healthy and then tonight's subject the the energy carrier I have to be honest with you I wasn't that excited about the title. Especially when you're married to Kim, because my wife Kim hates the word energy. She's like, oh, please don't use the word energy, because I do use the word energy. And, and you use it too, you just don't realize it. But whenever you use it in sort of a spiritual context, it, it can sound a little cheesy or a little new agey or, 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 you know, just a little strange, you know, but, you know, talking about energy and the energy carrier. But, but we all use energy language, don't we? You ever been around someone for a while? You just go, oh, man, that person's so draining. What you're saying is that they're sucking all the energy out of you. Or have you ever been in an event to go, man, that was so energizing? You've said that. Or have you ever been so tired at work? You go, uh, where is this in the Bible again? You know, just asking the dumb question here. <clears throat> you go get this little can of, well, an energy drink. 
Because you know what's in there is energy, right? In liquid form. And if you drink it, you are now energized. And, and we think in terms of energy, we just don't usually... Okay, just important question to ask. Um, what exactly it makes this a, quote, Christian sermon? Anything unique here that would you could say, oh, that's Christian? Well, not so far, no. Maybe he'll... I mean, this. we got 35 more minutes of this. I'm sure it'll be... It'll <laughs> drain you of your energy. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Nothing Christian so far. Nothing uniquely Christian so far has appeared in this sermon. And uh, based on the topic, the again, the uh, the relational intelligence, the energy carrier. I, I'm kind of at a loss. Hey, hey we can we continue. Usually, real tight. And of course, ever since well, we all discovered that E equals M C squared, it made sense to us, right? That everything is actually energy. That 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 matter. It's just energy moving slower. In fact, I'm kind of encouraged by that thought. Because we have a kind of a city that's really bent on health. You know, burning all the body fat and washboard stomachs and, and you know, tofu. What is tofu? And, uh, and we, we try so hard to be healthy. But when, what happens when you gain weight is that you're storing up energy. For a day when you need it. And, and so you're not overweight. You are lightened with energy. Oh. <laughs> There's a way of looking at it. I'm not overweight. I'm just latent with energy. Thanks for that wonderful euphemism. Um, <clears throat> again, what does this have to do with the Bible and what you're supposed to be doing, uh, Pastor? That's uh, preaching Christ and Him crucified. You know, preaching God's Word. You know, stuff like that. I just, I'm, call me confused, color me, uh, if you would, absolutely befuddled, but, um, I don't seem to quite get what it is that you're getting at, because your job is to preach the word. You know, the Bible, you should open it. Just waiting for that day when you explode on the scene with all of this energy just harnessed. And, of course, the problem is that when you eat, you're actually storing up fuel and energy. And if you don't, well, exercise, that energy has nowhere to go, so it sits with you. See, fat is just an unkind word for energy and waiting. <laughs> Everything we do is connected to energy. And the scriptures have this interesting perspective of how we relate to each other and, in a sense, in a beautiful... The scriptures have this interesting way of describing how we relate to each other? Yeah, can you actually open a, you know, like the Bible and show me this interesting way in which we relate to each other? Beautiful way. There's an image that we see in a particular moment in the life of Jesus. Okay, Jesus has now made an appearance, um, and this is all about learning how to relate to each other, though. This is uh, This is... Apparently an example of Jesus' relational intelligence. All right, here we go. We see this kind of dynamic. Because one of the things that we want to really talk about and focus on tonight is that you, you are either a person who brings, in a sense, positive energy into an environment, or you're a person who, who sucks energy out of a room. The way we're designed, we're just not, like, energy neutral. We either are contributors or consumers. I want you to look at me. 
What? <laughs> You're going to actually try to prove this from the Bible, from a story about Jesus. Oh, my. I can't wait to see this. I mean, a particular passage. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Oh, and surprise. <laughs> We're going to interpret something from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, on whether or not you are somebody who sucks energy out of the room or puts energy into it. I kid you not. Oh, no. I get the feeling I'm going to be doing my adventures and missing the point. I feel it coming. Get your Bibles out, folks. Turn to Luke chapter 8. I will... I'm already there. I can hardly wait to hear this. If you have a Bible, would you open it? I'm sure because I know everyone brought one. All right. And so if you have, I would just open up your daytimer and pretend it's a Bible or, or pull out your Palm Pilot or your Blackberry and pretend you have it electronically. Right. Luke chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 40. All right. I know it's dark out there. It says this. Now when Jesus returned, we, there it is. A crowd welcomed him, for, for they were all expecting him. And a man named Jairus, uh, Jairus a, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, that the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Isn't that an unusual phrase to hear from Jesus? I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Long before physics and science understood the relationship between the material and the spiritual... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so apparently we're going to be keying in on the phrase energy went out from Jesus. I <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> that nothing good can come from this. Oh boy. Relationship of all things. Long before science understood that we were conductors of energy, this particular image is so before its time. And the context is Jesus is seemingly going to do one thing, and he's working his way through the crowd. And people are pressing against him everywhere. And as he's working his way through, he feels someone not only touch him, but he feels power leave his body. And I, I, I thought about this for years and years and years, thinking, you just don't think about Jesus like this. That he would have the experience of the loss of power. is not the energizer bunny he experienced a loss of power 
You've got to be kidding me. No. Oh, man. <sighs> I am so sorry. This one just strikes me as absurd. <laughs> oh, no. His batteries were draining. <sighs> if your understanding is, as the scriptures paint it, that Jesus is God himself, that he is God stepping into human history, God taking on human form, God stepping into flesh and blood. And so... A little bit of uh, incarnation there. Good theology. Yeah, that's a, that's what Jesus was. There is. He's God in human flesh. But apparently he experienced a loss of power. Oh, boy. The essence of God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present, is at the very core of who Jesus is. And so you think this God who is all-powerful wouldn't notice one woman touching him for an instant, drawing just a bit of his power. But he does. He felt power leave him. I think we, we get an insight here. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> what was Luther's dictum again? If you do not understand the subject matter, you do not understand the words. Okay, this is this is a major principle when it comes to, to biblical interpretation. If you do not understand the subject matter, you will not get the words. Again, the concept here is, is that if you if you if your bet your buddies have had a conversation going on for four hours and they've debated all kinds of things and discussed all kinds of things really in depth, and you come in after the fourth hour and try to sit in on the conversation and then interject, you're going to say something stupid because you really don't know what the the subject matter of the conversation is. If you don't get that, that's the idea. Even though you understand the words that are being spoken, you don't understand the subject matter. You don't get what's going on. Same with the Bible. The Bible, the subject matter of the Bible is Christ crucified for our sins and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. That's the subject matter of Scripture. That is the overarching theme that governs everything. And if you don't understand that, then you can understand the you you won't really get the words, even though they're in English or uh, you can read them in the original language. You're not going to get the words. Let me point this out to you with the subject matter then firmly in hand. We go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 8, verse 40. <clears throat> this is a fantastic story, by the way. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jarius, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Now, let's kind of set this up. He's got a daughter who's uh, who's gravely ill. Okay, and that's what it says, verse fourteen. He ran. He had he for he had only a, a only a daughter at about twelve years of age, and she was dying. Okay, so this is. I mean, his daughter is in mortal danger of dying, and he knows it. I mean, this Jesus is last ditch, uh, his last hope of his daughter not dying. Okay, and what is this guy? He's a synagogue ruler. Okay. Keep this in mind. We continue reading. And Jesus went to the uh, went. The people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve 
years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, keep this in mind. The Mosaic Law makes it clear that if a woman is having a discharge of blood, uh, that she is considered unclean. And there's all kinds of consequences to being unclean. And many in the community would see that as a curse from God or that she's being cursed of God. And uh, therefore, there are certain religious things she could not participate in. Her access to God is limited, and she is a woman who is branded as unclean. Okay, So there's this big stigma to it, and here's the deal. If you touch an unclean person, you're unclean too. And then you now you've got to go through all the purification things. Yeah, you get what's going on here. So, okay, that's that's kind of the backstory to this. Read the Mosaic Law. So Jesus went. The people pressed around him, and there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. This unclean woman had touched Jesus secretly. And immediately she was cleansed. By what? The power leaving Jesus? Well, technically, yes. But Jesus points to something specific. Now we continue. So, <clears throat> so immediately her discharge of blood ceased and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Ridiculous question, by the way, because um, Peter says, uh, when all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. It's like, what do you mean who touched me? Look at all these people who are touching you. Okay. Jesus said, someone touched me. I perceived that power has gone out from me. Not that his power was drained, that just that it went out. Okay? Now, Jesus is not doing this because he needs to know who stole his power. No, in, in reality, he's doing this because this woman needs to know that her faith has saved her. And he's not going to let her remain to be an unnamed person and to continue to live in shame. Instead, he's going to affirm her faith. Now watch. And when the woman saw that <clears throat> that she was not, uh, not hidden, she came trembling. She's trembling. And you, you can almost read the subtext of this because Jarius is a synagogue ruler. Okay? They live in the same town. He knows this woman's been bleeding for 12 years and has been unclean. You could almost see his eyes rolling going, oh, no, not her. Okay? We got to, Jesus, we got to rush. Okay? So here she comes. She comes trembling. Absolutely frightened to death. Why? For 12 years, she's thought that God has been angry at her. That she was being punished. And, the, and, and you know, and she and she had spent all of her money, and it wasn't, and nobody can heal her, no one. And she thought she could sneak a miracle. So she comes trembling and falling down before Jesus, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. 
And he said to her, now watch. Now, this is interesting, okay? Because this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a play here going on in words. Because remember, Jairus' daughter is dying, right? And Jesus says to this woman, who's been unclean for 12 year, years, he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, really, this is not the story of this. I, I call this I call this story the story of the two daughters, because there's two daughters in, at play here. One is the dying daughter, and the other is this woman who has been unclean for twelve years. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you? You stole my energy. You're an energy sucker. My batteries were drained. No. Look at what God in human flesh says to this woman. Daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. And who was her faith in? In Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, he came to die on the cross for her sins and to cleanse her. And so she trusted in him. She knew he could heal him. And she did the most insane and absurd thing possible. She just wanted to touch his, the fringe of his cloak so that she wouldn't make him unclean. And she was healed. And it was her faith that did it. Her faith in her, Jesus. And he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So there's the first daughter. Now, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Jarius, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So while Jesus is tending to this unclean woman and calling her daughter, Jairus' daughter dies, and he gets word of it. You can't, you can't, you can't imagine what he's going through at this point. This was the last hope. This was the last hope. He had to save his daughter. He was powerless to, to do anything, but he knew that Jesus could do something. And he rushes to her, and Jesus is now delayed by this unclean woman. And he had to stop. I mean, you don't stop an ambulance, but this uh, Jesus stopped. And then he says to this woman who's been unclean for 12 years, Daughter, your, your faith has made you well, but what about my daughter? What about, what about my little girl? She's dead. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this answer, do not fear. Only believe. She will be well. Do not fear. Only believe. And she will be well. Now, this was specific to Jarius. However, these very, these very promises regarding our own death 
have been given to us by Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in him, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus even says you will not taste death. So in a very real way, these words do apply to us. Do not fear, only believe. Because the subject of the scriptures is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Christ and him crucified for your sins. And here is Jesus on earth, and he says to Jairus, in the face of death, he's already gotten the news, his daughter is dead. Do not fear, only believe. She will be well. And when he came to the house, Jesus allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her. Of course, it is a, it is a terrible tragedy when anyone dies. But it's even more painful when it's your daughter, when it's a little girl who one day was full of life and the next day is dead. All were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead. She's only sleeping. And no, Jesus is not lying here. He's God, and he can make such a claim. Because that's Jesus' way of describing death, I guess. <laughs> They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called and said, Child, little girl, arise. Her spirit returned. She got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Who is this Jesus who can raise someone from the dead, who himself rose again from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who died on the cross for your sins. And speaking of your death, in a very real way, he says, do not fear, only believe. And the same faith that healed the first daughter, the woman, the unclean woman who had a discharge for 12 years, also, also saves you and me. For it is by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. That's really what this story is about. It's about faith. It's about trust. It's about believing and not fearing in the face of death, in the face of sin, 
in the face of uncleanness and trusting. And through faith, Jesus Christ calls you son or daughter for all of our sins are wrapped up and taken care of by him, by him being our substitute on the cross. That's really what's at the heart of the story, not about Jesus' batteries being drained. But we continue with Erwin McManus, and let's find out what creative things he can do here, <clears throat> a Bible-believing liberal. From who Jesus is and how God has also designed us. I do want to focus on here, in here just for a moment, because when we talk about becoming an energy carrier, the assumption here is that you and me were supposed to live in such a way where we can actually bring good to the world around us, that we can actually bring, well, encouragement to the world around us, that we can bring inspiration to the world around us, that we can bring, well, energy to the world around us. And what we find in Jesus in this moment is that his source of power, his source of strength, his source of energy is his relationship with his father. Remember the context of Jesus telling us that apart from the father, he can do nothing. And so what Jesus was saying is he was this conduit that he experienced and received the very presence and power of his father. And when this woman touched him, she was touching God. And then he stops and he goes, who touched me? And it says, I love this. His disciples said, they all, it says that they all started denying it. I mean, why would they deny touching Jesus? He said, who touched me? Well, Lord, it wasn't me. They probably touched him all the time. And in fact, if they were pressed against the crowd, they were probably touching him incidentally. They understood by what, what Jesus was saying, by the intonation of his question, that Jesus felt something had been taken from him. Who touched me? He was on to say, because I felt power leave me, go out from me. And, and finally, they were like, well, Jesus, everybody touched you. You're in the middle of a crowd. That's what happens during crowd control. I mean, Jesus, this is getting a little bit too, well, obsessive compulsive. Who touched you? But the woman knew exactly what Jesus meant, and it says, filled with fear and trembling, she came and fell before Jesus and began to explain why she did it, feeling she had to justify her action. And then explaining, the moment I touched him, I was healed. And what I love about this particular passage, and the reason I want to begin here, is that when she came back to Jesus, I think she thought Jesus was going to punish her. But when Jesus began to talk to her, what he did instead of punishing her, is that he commended her. And not only did he commend her, but he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. And so she reached out to touch Jesus to receive the healing that came from his power. But she got more than that when she had the courage to step back up and say, It was me. I'm the one who reached out to touch you, Jesus, because I knew that you had something. Or at least I hoped that you had something that I needed. And I thought if I could just reach out and touch you, that I might receive from you that which no one else can bring to me. And I was right. You healed me. But not only did she receive healing from this physical ailment in her life, but now Jesus speaks to her peace. I think a lot of times in our lives, we come to God for so little, and we're afraid to believe he might actually long to give us more. And I start here because if you want to be an energy carrier, you need to realize you can only give what you have. Why do I want to be an energy carrier? Um, I, I, that 
phrase appears nowhere in the scriptures. Uh, nowhere am I admonished to be an energy carrier. Is that like a water bucket? I think this is why so many relationships in this world don't work. I think it's why a lot of marriages don't work. Because we, we look to our husband to give us something that they cannot give us, or our wife to give us something they cannot give us. I think this is why so many relationships go bad, because you start dating someone, and eventually you just realize that they can't meet all those needs in your life, that there's something missing at the core of who you are. And, and so you start, in a sense, becoming embittered toward them, because they can't give you what you need. And the reality is the way you are designed, the way you are created, what you need most at the very core of your being is to reach out and touch God so that the power and strength and healing that comes in Him can be yours. So I don't want to take time and talk to you about how to be an energy carrier without beginning here. That what you and I need more than anything else in the world is to connect to Jesus so that we can be fully alive. And so if the phrase energy carrier doesn't connect to you in the way it should, maybe you should think of it in a different way. Maybe you need to realize that what you're being invited to do is to be a life giver. When she touched Jesus, she was... I mean, being invited to be a life giver? Well, I do have three kids. Is that what you're talking about? Healed. And I think that we underestimate the power that God gives us. I think we underestimate that we have been given by God the power to heal one another. Uh, What? I've been given by God the power to heal other people? Really? Uh... Huh? Man, I I am reading the wrong theology books. I just I. <clears throat> well, let me start a little further back so that you don't think I'm out of my mind. You know you have the power to hurt, don't you? Do you know that? Why do I feel like I'm being led through some kind of philosophical, uh, logical syllogism rather than a biblical teaching? We're going to start with I have the capacity to hurt. Oh, boy. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone and have you been hurt by them? See, I don't think there's any of us here who have never experienced the, the wounds of trusting someone else and having them let us down. See, well, without any real investigation, we all know that we have the power to hurt one another. And the curious thing about it is that the more we love someone, the more we trust them, the closer we bring them into our life, the the more we let down all of our defenses, the greater possibility it is that they will wound us deeply and hurt us. And if that wasn't bad enough that we live this life and find ourselves being hurt by the people that we love, it gets even worse than that because we find ourselves hurting the people we love, even when we sincerely and genuinely love them. Have you ever been just absolutely perplexed by the things you do? Yeah, <clears throat> kind of plumbing the depths of the nature of uh, sin there. Um, 
And so this past 10 days or so, I was in Florida for a few days and then in New York for a few days and then in Maine for several days. And, and, and I asked Kim if she would go with me and Kim graciously came with me and we went to Florida for a few days and then we went to New York for a few days and we went to Maine for a few days. And, and when you start traveling together and going from plane to plane and place to place and hotel to hotel, it's, 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 it's nice and it's exciting and it's an adventure, but it's also, it starts getting on your nerves. And then when you just start getting tired and inconvenienced, it starts stripping you away to who you really are. And I, I, I gotta tell you, these eight, nine days with Kim were amazing. They were the most wonderful, enjoyable days. I'm thinking, I cannot believe I've been married to this person for over 25 years and she's still so much fun. And we were having a blast. So you can apply. That's actually pretty cool. <laughs> We didn't have one single fight. And, and that included being with my family in Orlando. And whenever we get around my family, things just get strange and weird and dysfunctional. And, 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 and even, even then we didn't fight. It's amazing. And, and then on the last night before I was taking Kim to the airport to fly from Maine back to Los Angeles because I had to stay there for a few days. On the very, very last night, in the few moments right before we were going to sleep... I said something I shouldn't have said. <laughs> it only lasted like eight seconds. Now, I said it, and, and, and I, I knew when I said it, I shouldn't have said it, and because I was angry about something I shouldn't have been angry about. And when I said it, I said it again, and then again, and then again, because I'm male. And... <laughs> And it, it takes a little while before you realize that what you... I just want to remind you that um, somewhere along the line, we did actually hear uh, Luke chapter 8. And uh, the best that ahem, our good friend uh, Irvin McManus could do was to basically talk about something about being an energy carrier. I'm still... Uh, the question, how do you carry this energy? Um, do you carry it in a bucket? Do you, do you carry it in, carry it in some kind of electrical conduit conductor entrapment device? Kind of like you know uh, Ghostbusters. Um, you know they had that little grid thing. Um, yeah, how? Yeah, if I'm going to be a carrier of this energy, um, I, I do want to make sure. And, and, and are there any potential? environmental hazards to this energy that I'm going to be carrying? These are important questions that should be asked. What you're doing is so stupid that even a primate would know better. I could hear <laughs> Don't do it! But I couldn't get it. Because in New York, I bought her a hat. Because I love hats. And so we went to this hat shop and I bought her this beautiful little hat and then I made sure that they had this really, really cool little hat box for the hat. But Kim didn't really care about the hat box, but I cared about the hat box. And when she was packing up, she didn't have enough room in her suitcase, so she put the hat box in the garbage. And when I saw the hat box in the garbage, I was so upset because it's just wrong that she would throw away the package of the gift I gave her. She can't do what she wants to do with the garbage I gave her. She has to do what I want her to do with it. It's so clear to me. And so I was angry over the garbage. And so then we went to sleep and it was cold and distant.
and quiet. And even while she was sleeping, I could hear her. And when we woke up in the morning, it was utilitarian. We just got done what we needed to get done, and then we're driving the two hours to the airport, no conversation. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I just ruined nine perfect days in 30 seconds. So I thought it more poetically, eight days lost in eight minutes. And then I just started apologizing, which is what we do. Even before we understand what we've done wrong, we know the apology is necessary. And, and I started thinking, there's something about the way we're designed. That, that you can have a thousand strokes, but one wound, and it overtakes them. Could it have anything to do with sin? Just, just interjecting a possible answer to this conundrum. <sighs> Why is it important to think about whether you're an energy carrier in a positive sense? Oh, give me a break. Jesus never talked about being an energy carrier. None of the prophets did. The None of the apostles did. This is just a completely ridiculous thing this is not a christian sermon although we didn't hear from the gospel of luke so you did hear about jesus today uh, <clears throat> see that was the sermon part of it you know if we were to cut out the other stuff around it so far uh, we could have been he could have just pre, you know read that section of scripture and said good night everybody that would have actually been a christian sermon <sighs> of how you affect the people around you I want to throw out this possibility that you have the power to wound. The <laughs> really? <laughs> That's deep. I bet you didn't know that, did you? Yeah. It's not good old Irwin here telling you that. Yeah, I'm sure there are you know thousands of you listening to Fighting for the Faith right now going, I never knew I had the power to wound. Wow, I could have had a V8. The world power to hurt the people you love. And you already know that if you've had a moment of honesty with yourself. Oh, boy. Most people figure this out when they're toddlers. Just... Mm. But what you may not know is that you have the power to heal. Me? You, uh, really? Wow, sounds important. Can you show me from the scripture where it says, I have the power to heal? What are you talking about? Oh, I know. I got to become an energy carrier. Again, the, 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 I'm wondering what I'm carrying it in. Do you have the power to step into a moment and bring hope where there is despair? You have the power to step into a moment where there is no love and bring love? You have the power to destroy and bring an end to prejudice and racism and bitterness and envy and jealousy and loneliness and isolation. And you may not be taking advantage of the power. <clears throat> Notice that these, <clears throat> so apparently I have all this power. Um, and yet a lot of the things he's describing here, uh, biblically, we would classify as fruits of repentance or fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, so who would be the one that has the power there? Let's see, fruit of the Holy Spirit. That well, that would be well the, the Holy Spirit, not me having the power. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, uh, can we talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit here and the fruit of repentance worked in our life through the Holy Spirit? Yeah, you're making me sound like I'm some kind of quasi Messiah character. Yeah, I'm, I have the power to bring hope. I have the power to stop prejudice. <laughs> that's right. It's Tubby Man. That's yeah. That <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> I, I'm getting smaller. We continue. Or that has been entrusted to you. And maybe you've lived your life thinking that you only have two options. You're either neutral or you're destructive. And you didn't realize that you have the power to heal. See, where do I get this? Where did I get this power again? Whose power is this? Is this innate within me? Being an energy carrier is about living from your core. It's about stepping into a relationship with God where you allow him to become your source of healing so that you can become a source of healing to the world around you. You become a life giver. Oh, boy. This is what happens when you just kind of create your own Christianity in your basement. Uh, keep in mind, Frankenstein, that he was made in a basement laboratory, too. <sighs> and it is a curious thing, this dynamic of energy. I, 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 I thought about it again this week because you ever seen those hotels where you have that little key that you just drop in and it's a magnetic strip? I hate those. I, I hate those because they, they never work twice. I mean, I have this all the time. In fact, usually I'll ask for two, three keys just so I can have my backup and my backup. And this past week in Maine, for the five, six days I was there, I was getting a new key virtually every single day, sometimes more than once. Okay, here's some practical advice. Do not put your... I have a little bit of experience doing business travel. Don't put your cell phone... And your hotel room key, the, those magnetic things, in the same pocket. Just saying, okay. What I do, it, it, my, I never have a problem with those keys anymore, because the problem is, is that your cell phone actually can wipe out the magnetic strip. Believe it or not, it's true. And so what I do is I make sure I take the key and I stick it in my wallet. It just like any of my other credit cards, never have any problems with it. Just you see that I'm not even going to charge you extra for that little bit of information. Just something I learned along of long life's many experiences that have come my way. You know, survival here in the postmodern era. Uh, today's hotel room keys, keep them in your wallet away from your cell phone. You'll be much happier and you won't have to constantly get new keys. Just want to point that out. And so I had two different keys, and both of them now didn't work. And I was back to talk to the same person at the desk who gave me the key the day before. And the day before, of course, she lectured me about, you got to keep it away from your Blackberry. Do you have a Blackberry? Do you have any electronics? And I'm going, I do, but it's not them. And, and so then I was going to work out. And so I checked the key before I left the room, and it worked. I put it in my pocket. I went down to the exercise room. I worked out for 30, for 45 minutes, and uh, for an hour and 20. And, uh, and then I um, went back to the room, and it didn't work again. 
I'm so frustrated. I'm all sweaty and I want to get a shower and it's wasting my time. And I take the elevator back down and go to the front desk and I have to wait all the people she's serving. And finally go, you know what, though? This may not be a Blackberry. It it might be that, see, you know, because Erwin McManus, I mean, he wouldn't be telling us that we need to be energy carriers if he himself wasn't. So this kind of goes back to my earlier question. Are there any potential environmental hazards to being an energy carrier the way he's describing it? Apparently there is. You know, I, I I must retract what I said. This is not a problem with his cell phone. This actually might be having to do something to do with the energy he's carrying. It's wiping out the hotel room keys. This could be a, considered an argument against being an energy carrier, especially if you travel a lot, because you see, you don't want your life messed up like this. My keys won't work again, either one. And she gave me a lecture again, like she was my mother. Did you once again put it by a Blackberry or did you put it by electronics? I go, no. It was just in my pocket. It was just me. (laughs) And then she looked at him. She goes, oh, well, then it must be your magnetic personality. (laughs) Wow. That was a long road to hoe for that particular joke. Okay, we continue. I could be wrong, but I sensed a bit of sarcasm in her voice, and uh, and then I remembered. I have this strange anomaly. See, I I, I told you guys a while back. I actually like, collect watches. I don't know. I might have 10, 15 different watches or so. And and but years ago, really, it happened by accident because well, you know I, I I come from like the the Timex world. I don't know if you guys even know who they are. And, and then Seiko, you know, that, you know, the $5 drugstore watch. And it was good because I'd always lose my watches, and so that way it wasn't too painful. But about 20 years ago, a long time ago, my mom sent me a watch as a gift, and it was a Gucci. I didn't even know Gucci made watches, and it was a really cool watch for, you know, that time. And, and it was worth several hundred dollars. And so I put on this Gucci watch. And I'm like, wow, so cool and everything like that. And then it stopped working the next day. And I was so frustrated going, this is a Gucci. It's supposed to work. And, and, and so I took it and I called my mom. And she was, no, it's brand new, honey. I promise you. It put a brand new battery in it. So I took it to a watch shop. And I told them to put a new battery in it. And they, and they did. And they had it there for a day. And the next day when I went to get it, they said, works great. We had it here all day. It's running perfectly. I took it, put it on. A couple of days later, it wasn't working again. And I go, wow. Man, they gave me a used defective battery. So I took it back. And I said, the battery you put in there didn't work. And they said, look, we put a new battery. And I said, well, it's not working. Look at it. And they go, yeah, it's not working. All right, we'll put a new battery in it. So I left it there for a couple of days. And then I came back to get it. And they put a new battery in it. And it was working great. And then a couple of days later, it stopped working again. So it was really frustrating, so I went back. You see, he's just like Jesus, because energy is leaving him. Back again, and I said, look, there's something wrong with this watch. It's not the battery. It's something wrong with the mechanical stuff. And I said, all right, we'll look at it. And they gave us under warranty, because it was only a few days old. And he said, the watch is great. We sent it back. It's working perfectly. I took it. It worked fine for a couple days. stopped working again. And then I realized every time I would put the watch on the desk... A day or so later, it started working again. And when I put it on, it would work for a day or two and then stop. And so then I went and bought a second watch to see if I could do the same thing with the second watch. And, and the second watch did the same thing. 
the watch would work, and when I'd wear it, it would stop working after a couple days. And if I would just sit on the desk after a day or so, it would start working again, and it would be fine. And then I would wear it, and it would work for a couple days, and it would stop. And so I started switching watches so that I would always have a working watch. Because, and I know this sounds like an urban myth. But what I discovered was that I actually emanate so much electricity that I actually stop watches from working. It's a miracle! It's a miracle! He's just like one of the heroes from the from the NBC's uh, hit series Heroes, man. He's the stopwatcher guy. And what exactly does this have to do with Jesus again and um, what he's done for us? Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. We're talking about being an energy carrier. See, he's an energy carrier. I am a prophet. Especially under high stress. And so when I'm extremely stressed, my watch stops. It doesn't want to relate to me anymore. It wants to get away from me. And I realized that, that when, under, when I'm under high stress, my watch has a way of communicating to me, this isn't working for me. But the people in my life, a lot of times they don't have a way of saying that. See, I, I think so many times what we're doing in our lives is that we're... Br- That was a segue. My watch, my watch has a say, way of saying that I'm stressed out, but my family doesn't always have a way of saying it. Oh man! And keep in mind, he is an in-demand conference speaker, flying all over the world, telling everybody about how to do what he does. And I, I what is it that he does again? I, I don't know. Bringing into the room the worst of us. And we don't realize how we're affecting the people in our lives. How we're bringing destructive environments into the world. Oh, no. Are you bringing a destructive environment into the world? Apparently, maybe I'm interpreting this wrong. Well, maybe Irwin is all by himself a destructive environment rather than an energy carrier. I'm not sure how this theology works. Anyway, oh, man. But when people are around you, do they find themselves with more hope? Do they find themselves more optimistic about life? Well, when people get... <laughs> I swear, you can almost see his lip trembling when he's... When, when you get into a room, do people have more hope? Are they more optimistic about life? I, I don't know. We were watching football. The World Series is on. Who cares if they're more optimistic or have more hope? The Yankees are playing the Phillies, dude. Shut up and stop giving us that girly stuff. We're trying to watch the game. <laughs> Get in a conversation with you. Do they leave energized? Do they f- feel full of life? Do you find people, well, surprised how time has just flown by because the time was so rich and full? Or... Do you find yourself leaving people less filled with joy? (laughs) Well, it kind of depends on the circumstance, okay? Not all conversations are the same. Seriously. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, this is crazy. I, I, I'm now, I've got to be really self-conscious now that every conversation I have, that I'm being an energy carrier and people have more hope and are more optimistic at the end of it. Funny enough, I actually engage in conversations in such a way that some of them, I'm hoping that at the end of it, that the person has no hope. I want them to be fully aware of their sinful condition and God's wrath. So that they know their need of a savior so I can preach the gospel to them. Ay, ay, ay. And other conversations, dude, I mean, have you never had a guy conversation? Seriously. I'm going to go fishing with the guys right now, honey. Have a great time. We cra You go out to a stream. You throw a line into the water. You're not talking about whether or not this conversation is making more optimistic or hope-filled. <laughs> I it, Oh, man. Oh, this is ridiculous. <sighs> Less optimistic. Less hopeful. I think a lot of times we, we, we take a lot of our failure success conversations to skills and competencies, to talent, to intellect, and we go, how, how can I become more talented or how can I get better at this? How can I become more competent? How can I develop the right skills? How, how, how can I increase my, my intellect? How can I work from my strengths? And, and what we forget sometimes is that the most significant thing you bring into the room is you. Uh, oh boy. I thought the most significant thing I would bring into a room would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, oh man, this is just ridiculous. Oh, we continue. It's who you are as a human being. And the effect you have on others in regard to their well-being. And I, I guarantee you this, if you don't become any more talented, if you don't develop any more skills, if you don't develop any systems to work better from your strengths, if you never have an increase in IQ or education or knowledge. Where is any of this found in the Bible? These are great platitudes, maybe even good advice. I have no idea. I'm a guy. I don't know my feelings. Um, oh. Um, but this is not biblical. This is not even Christian theology, doctrine, or anything of the sort. This is just uh, relational intelligence. Uh. But you become a person committed to giving more than you take. La, 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 la. This is not, this is not good works motivated from the gospel. Uh, repentance and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is just, I'm going to commit myself to... <laughs> To bringing myself in a positive way to build people up so that they're more optimistic and have hope. No, I, I'm going to just proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and let God work out the hope stuff. Your life will change dramatically. If you will make the decision, the conscious decision, that in every relationship, in every engagement, in every human interaction, you will make sure that you give more than you take. It will be as if you suddenly became a savant, a genius. Because you will become a gift to the world. 
I will become a gift to the world. Really? <laughs> Should I put a big ribbon on me? Uh, I'm, I'm going to become the gift to the world. Uh, no, thanks. I'll leave the gift thing to God. God, Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world. In, in all reality, that's true. Rosebro, not even close. You got Jesus Christ, and then you got Chris Rosebro. Nope. I, I can tell you, most of the world, if they if they thought that I was some kind of gift to the world, most of the world would say, eh, "No thanks." Can you send it back? I, I'd probably get exchanged. Uh, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You know, if I was a wedding gift, I would be re-gifted. Uh, no one would want it. <sighs> when I think of energy, I think of passion, don't you? And when, when I find people who are highly energized, it's because they're highly passionate about something. And, and I was looking at this particular passage with Jesus. Oh, here we go again. And I think Bible, Bible verse picked out to support emotional intelligence. Uh, the first chapter, the first thing he read had nothing to do with the relational intelligence at all. Uh, nor did it have anything to do with Jesus having his battery drains. Uh, we continue. Really hones this particular point in. Because we, we see from Jesus that when you access him, his power brings healing in our lives. But in John 13, I just want to read three verses. You're familiar with them. But it says, it was just before the Passover feast, John 13, 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so John is just beginning this particular story by saying, this is the story of Jesus' love for humanity. And exactly how did Jesus demonstrate his love for humanity? But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the, uh, you know, the ungodly. Yeah, you, you see what I'm saying here? And it's, Jesus is about ready to die for the sins of the world. The evening meal was in progress, and, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So here you have the collision of absolute love, unconditional love, and absolute power. It says all the power of God the Father has now been placed under the authority of Jesus and all the love of God toward humanity. And these two things moved into a moment of absolute perfect convergence. And what Jesus does next, it says, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured the water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The kind of energy carrier that God wants us to be. Oh, no. No, no, no. That You cannot make that transition. Oh, no, no. Jesus, says, Jesus says that he came in the world not to be served, but to serve. And here we have God himself in human flesh... 
really taking on the role of a servant and washing the feet of the disciples. What's this all about? Well, look at what Jesus is doing. Okay? Let me read more of the story. And then Jesus poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Lord. It's not right, is it? It's it's completely backwards. God washing Peter's feet? You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, but not my feet only my hands and my head too. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. This is the God who gives. This is the God who dies. This is the God who washes sins away. For God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and washed our sins away. How sad that uh, Irwin missed an opportunity here to spring right into the gospel and instead said the kind his he just read a couple verses from me and said the kind of energy carrier God wants you to be. This passage isn't about you being an energy carrier. This is about Jesus washing you. This is about Jesus serving you. Is the kind of person that when they harness all the power that God has entrusted them with and are fueled by all the love of God that has been poured into them, live their lives serving others. See, passion is love and urgency poured into a thermos together and then shaken, not stirred. Passion is love and urgency, caring so deeply about something that you must act out of your concern. A couple of uh, months ago, I think about a month and a half ago, I was invited to speak at this event. And I think I mentioned to you there were about 250 families who had all given minimally $200,000 to some humanitarian project. And, And so these were some of America's wealthiest people who were also some of America's most generous people. And, and I had been invited to, to speak to this group and kind of give them a sense of what was happening in the world and, you know, cast vision for their giving. And, and the man who had invited me, who spearheaded this huge network for the last 20, 30 years, 
We're sitting at the guest table in the front where the speaker sits. And, and you ever seen someone, but you, you, you thought you, you recognized them, but you didn't really know if you did? That was the way it was for me all night at dinner. I kept thinking, I think I, I've seen this person before, but I don't really recognize him. But he seems familiar. And, and so finally I, I said to him, I said, Fred, I said, where, where, where are you from? He said, Tyler, Texas. I said, really? Tyler, Texas? And he goes, yes. I said, did you used to work for the Leadership Network? He goes, yes. And, and I said, that's right. Fred, you and me, we've met before. He goes, we have? I made such a huge impression on him. And I said, yes, I drove out to Tyler because you were funding all of these different organizations and giving huge chunks of money to, to different pioneers or, or entrepreneurs. And, and I, I drove the two hours to meet with you, and I share with you an image, a picture, a vision of what the church could become and why it would be worth investing in this kind. I just want to point this out. One of the things I've been keeping track of is how much Erwin McManus is talking about himself as opposed to talking about Christ. Now, every time he read a passage of Scripture where, he, uh, where the story was about Christ, he did get credit for actually talking about Jesus. However, at this point, I just did some quick calculations. Uh, the Erwin McManus stories, um, he, he's running about f- uh, four minutes uh, to every one minute of Jesus. So for every four minutes that Erwin tells a story about himself, he tells uh, one minute of a story of something about Jesus. Now keep in mind, throughout the sermon, he has not only been talking about himself, uh, but uh, right now it's at the it's a four to one ratio, and I think it's going to go up to five to one if he continues. Uh, we'll see. Here. The future, and then he stopped me and he said, "And I told you it would never work." I said, "That's right. You remember? You told me it would never work." And I thought the irony of this: twenty years later. The man who told me it wouldn't work and it wasn't worth investing in was now inviting me to talk to all these investors. And, and he, he said, uh, I'm sorry about that. And, uh, and he says, but it seems like you've done all right. And, and I said, no, you don't understand, Fred. I mean, it would have been great if you'd given me money, which you didn't. But, uh, and I'm not bitter. It would have been great, but you gave me a gift. He goes, I did? I said, yes, you did. Because before I left, you said to me, You know, it's rare to meet someone who's passionate about anything. And so all the way back, driving home those two hours, I didn't sit there and and have an experience of regret. I didn't feel any bitterness. You you didn't need or, or, or have any obligation to invest in my dream. But you gave me a gift all the way back. I kept driving, thinking to myself... This man who meets some of the most powerful people in the world said to me, it's rare to meet someone who's passionate about anything. And so the way I can remain rare all my life is to make sure I'm always passionate about something. And that was his gift. And you see an energy carrier. So that was his gift to you that he said something about passion. You are familiar with the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the gift of the forgiveness of sins, the, the big things talked about in the scripture. Like, you, by the way, none of this stuff is talked about in the Bible. There is a person who refuses to allow apathy to take their life over. 
who refuses to live in mediocrity, who will not allow the average and the mundane and the common and the ordinary to define or limit their life. And there's a world out there who desperately needs you to live at your highest level. Who needs you? No, they need Jesus Christ who lived perfectly for them in their place. Died on the cross as their substitute. I am not the Messiah. You to get up in the morning realizing that there is a God who created you. And he longs to energize you, to pour his love and his power into your life so that you can become a conduit of his life. What? I'm called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Nothing about being a conduit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about creating delusions of grandeur to the world around you. And I can tell you this, that if you will allow God to do this in your life, you will have people fighting their way through the crowd to get close to you and to touch you. No, no, you did not. You did not. Oh, that's just blasphemous. Unbelievable. So if I make a decision to allow God to use me as a conduit for his energy, people will be pushing around the crowd so they can touch me. What a load of bovine scatology. You, oh, this is satanic. Come on. I am not the Messiah. You are not the Messiah. And, and if you, if you really think that you can make a decision to in such a way that people are going to be pressing to touch you, you are not focused on the right person at all. Your focus needs to be on Christ and him crucified for your sins. Because you ain't nobody special. You're a wretched sinner sold under slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And you belong to the devil. And you are an object of God's wrath by nature. And God is coming back. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and will send everybody who does not trust in him to an eternal hell. But Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you would not have to face that wrath. He took God's wrath for you. Repent and believe this good news and not this garbage that... Erwin McManus is preaching. Oh man. So the moral of the story of of the story of the woman who touched Jesus' garment is that you, if you allow yourself to become a conduit for God, people will be pressing in to touch you. That is just satanic pap. Because they will know that in your life there's a source of healing and help and hope. Sorry, I wonder tonight if you, when you enter a room, absorb the light and create more darkness. Or if you, when you enter a room, you become a part of dispensing the darkness and bringing light to those around you. Let's pray together. 
I won't let that guy pray for you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wow, that was bad. Floored a little bit here. Many times when I re- review a sermon ahead of time, I, I, I don't listen to the whole sermon. I, I get you know maybe halfway through it so I can get a gist of what's going on and know what I'm trying to be pointing out. That, that caught me off guard. Whoa, that was bad. Yikes. Folks, that's not Christian preaching, which you just heard. That was actually satanic. And I, and I mean that in the fullest sense of the word. It didn't point you to Christ and him crucified for your sins. It That kind of preaching makes you think you're a Messiah. And you ain't. You are a sinner in need of a savior. Frightening. Ab- absolutely frightening. Wow. My prayers go out to Erwin McManus that God would grant him repentance and the forgiveness of sins for this blasphemous teaching of his. Because that's what that was. Blasphemy. Lying about what the scriptures teach in the name of God. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what angel, that's an angel of light. But it's really Satan. That, that, the wow. All right. Well, folks, um. We are, that, that again, that kind of left me speechless. We're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. It actually does cost money for us to to daily bring you this important radio outreach. And uh, right now, we've come up with a very, very unique and beneficial way for our listeners to ensure the longevity of uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio as a whole by joining the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. We're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners initially, uh, and we've got a long way to go, to sign up to join our crew. And by joining our crew, you actually, uh, you're, you're signing up to have a mere uh, $6.95 a month uh, uh, taken out of your account automatically, uh, deducted from your account automatically, at that, and that $6.95, although it's a small amount of money for you, spread across 1,000 people, That when we get to that, it ensures that uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, Radio will be able to continue uh, doing this important work of discernment here at uh, at Pirate Christian Radio. Uh, so will you join our crew? And believe it or not, when you do, you can. Uh, we actually give you access to our, our, our Pirate Christian Cove. We've got a secret safe harbor of good doctrine and theology set up for our, our uh, crew members. You can do so, though, by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com. Click on one of the buttons there that says Join Our Crew. And, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, we are always thankful for that. And you can do that by clicking on the Donate button or by uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I'm going to go pick my jaw up off the floor. All right, so uh, <clears throat> what'd you think? Um, what'd you learn? What would you like to uh, tell me in feedback? You can do so by sending me an email at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, again, pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross, even for a wretched sinner such as you. Amen. Amen.